Um, we're very lucky tonight to have with us a number of friends and colleagues and also the curator um, of the exhibition, Kristen Heilman, that I'll talk about more later, to give their unique perspectives on Anne Truitt. All of them in one way or another uh, knew Anne Truitt and experienced her work and we're going to learn, I think, a lot about Anne Truitt tonight and uh, it's going to be, I think, a very interesting evening. Um, it's important that Anne Truitt's work was presented here in Washington, not only because of Washington, but because I believe she has been somewhat under-recognized uh, as an artist. Uh, she is one of the most important artists who pushed abstraction, minimalism, color field, whatever you want to call it, forward in absolutely new and creative ways and made a huge difference in art history beginning in the 1960s um, and on forward. Uh, before we begin tonight, before I be introduce the panelists, I do want to say a few thank yous uh, for this exhibition. Uh, it takes a lot of people to make an exhibition like this possible. And uh, I do want to say thanks, first of all, to something very special that was organized uh, for this particular exhibition, the Anne Truitt Patrons Committee, and the co-chairs of that committee, Tim Gunn and Martin Purrier, both of whom are on the panel tonight as well. And other members of that committee who made this exhibition possible, Judy Cotton and Yale Neeland, Celia Faulkner Crawford, Jean Efron and Anthony Picado, Mrs. Mercedes Eicholtz, Henry and Carol Goldberg, Jacqueline and Mark Leland, who are also on our board and are wonderful people and supportive in every way. Vicki and Roger Sant, uh, of course, very involved with uh, the Hirshhorn and the, and the National Gallery. Um, and Lynn and Rodney Sharp. Thanks to all of them for making this exhibition possible. And also a very, very big thanks to the estate of Ann Truitt. Tonight we have Ann Truitt's children here with us, Alexandra, Mary, and Sam. I think they're all here. Uh, tonight. I, I know I saw Alexandra and Sam. And uh, without their support, this exhibition simply uh, would not have been possible. And um, we're very happy they could be here tonight to, to participate uh, in this. I need to also thank the foundations that made this exhibition possible. It's foundations like the Henry Luce Foundation, the Andy Warhol uh, Foundation, and the Judith Rothschild Foundation uh, that allowed us to do this exhibition. I want to say a special thanks to Kristen Heilman, who organized this show and is also one of the panelists uh, here tonight, uh, and the entire staff of the museum uh, that worked so very hard on this exhibition, um, including uh, Milena Kalinowska, our director of public programs, who makes all of these uh, uh, public talks uh, possible, including our Meet the Artist series. And now I'd like to introduce the panelists for this evening. Uh, first of all, someone who probably needs no introduction at this point, Tim Gunn, who is our moderator uh, for this evening. Um, but I will, even though I know you all know uh, who he is, I will give some background nevertheless. Uh, Tim is the Chief Creative Officer at Liz Claiborne, and he's the Honorary Chair of Fashion Design at the Parsons School of Design in New York. And of course, he also seems to have done something called Project Runway. 
as co-host. I uh, don't know what that is, but um, uh, it's something else he's done. And he will serve as moderator tonight, so, so it should be a very exciting evening. Um, prior to being um, with Liz Claiborne, uh, Tim was the chair of the Department of Fashion Design at Parsons School of Design, where he reinvigorated the curriculum uh, for the 21st century and really uh, made it one of the leading institutes for fashion design uh, education uh, in America. Um, Tim is a native Washington, D Washingtonian, and as are several of the people that we have here tonight. In fact, this is a real Washington evening uh, in many ways. Um, and he studied sculpture at the Corcoran, which is where he first saw uh, the work of Ann Truitt uh, back in a 1974 exhibition uh, that they held there. And it's been, uh, he's, she's been a very strong influence uh, on his work over the years. We also have, as a member of our panel tonight, the distinguished sculptor, who also needs no introduction, is Martin Purrier, one of the great artists of our time, who's recently had a major retrospective exhibition at the National Gallery of Art, an extraordinarily beautiful show, uh, I might add, I, even though it was at another institution. Uh, although I do believe we did have a retrospective here, Martin, uh, and we beat the National Gallery to that at one point. Um, one of the great sculptors of our era. He's received many awards, I'll just mention a couple, a Guggenheim Fellowship, a MacArthur Foundation grant, and he's in the collection of many, many museums, including, I might add, several pieces here um, at the Hirshhorn. Uh, Martin taught at the University of Maryland uh, in College Park where he met Ann Truitt who also taught there between 1975 um, until 1976. Um, it's a pleasure to also introduce Jim Cohen. Uh, this is a filmmaker, an artist, video artist, installation artist that I've really loved his work for many, many years. Our uh, curator of film and video, Kelly Gordon, introduced me to his work some time back, and I'm a major fan of, of his films. He's done over 35 films, um, many of them about travels around the globe, um, and he's also uh, done a lot of portraits of friends and artists and musicians, one of which, which is about Ann Truitt, is actually in the exhibition. Now, we don't usually do that at the Hirshhorn. We like the gallery to remain quite pure to the, for the artist's work. Um, and we don't usually put what you might term didactic material in, but this is not didactic material. This is an artwork unto itself, and it deserves a place right in the exhibition. And it's a very beautiful film and very meaningful and discusses uh, Anne's work, shows Anne at work in her various studios. Um, they met actually at uh, Yado, uh, where they were both in residence together in 1999, 2000. 2001 and 2003. And his film working, I really highly recommend that you take a look at if you go through the uh, exhibition. She herself speaks about her practice uh, in, in the film. And then we also have the major photographer, also Washington DC based, uh, John Gossage, wonderful photographs of urban environments, many, many different subjects, has done major books such as monographs called The Pond, Stadt uh, des Shorts uh, in 1987. He's in the collection of MoMA, uh, the Corcoran, uh, and also the Bibliothèque Nationale uh, in Paris. He started 
started out actually as a commercial photographer working for Esquire and Look Newsweek and the New York Times, but he switched over to the Walden School and began studying photography very early on, as has a major career as a photographer since then. He met Ann Truitt when they both occupied studios in a house on Calvert Street, which was overseen, as I understand, by Walter Hopps. And I'd like to hear about that house and what went on there, because I knew Walter Hopps, and so I have some idea. Um, and he also photographed uh, Ann Truitt, and, uh, as well as, I think, organizing one of the exhibitions uh, that Ann Truitt did, uh, which was called the White Painting Show, yes, which was uh, at the Baltimore Museum of Art. And now Kristen Heilman. Kristen Heilman is our curator of contemporary art. She has done a magnificent job on this exhibition. She has worked extremely hard for over four years to bring this exhibition to you, uh, to the public, and we're very proud of her for having done this. Um, and it's, it's her, her big pyrotechnics finale here at the Hirshhorn, because in about a week she will be leaving us here and heading up to Baltimore, not too far from us, to become the curator of contemporary art and the department head at the Baltimore Museum of Art. And so we consider her to be close enough that we're still going to get her down here to do lots of work for us uh, all the time. And we're simply taking the Baltimore Museum now as one of the satellites um, of the Hirshhorn. <laughs> At the Hirshhorn, um, she has organized a number of very, very important exhibitions, including a show of the work of Saiguo Chung, uh, of Jim Hodges, of Oliver Herring, a wonderful performance artist. And she also organized the exhibition that you saw as you walked in this evening, Strange Bodies, figurative work from the Hirshhorn collection, which has been a wonderful show that's been up uh, for about a year now, but we've been changing it. And as we buy new things, uh, things come in and out of that show, and it's been a, a quite amazing exhibition. Uh, and uh, we're going to miss uh, uh, Kristen here, but we will be seeing her all the time uh, up in Baltimore for free lunches at her museum that has a much better cafe than we do here. <laughs> uh, has a cafe, actually. <laughs> She first encountered Ann Truitt's work uh, in the mid-1990s, and it uh, influenced her greatly in her thinking, and she began planning for this show, as I said, a number of years ago, and it's finally here, it's finally arrived, and she will participate on this panel tonight. So I'd like to turn this over to Tim Gunn, who will act as moderator. Tim, make it work. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Terry. Thank you. I have to begin by saying I think that Anne would have eschewed the term moderator as she did the term lecturer. She really preferred saying, well, we're going to have a conversation. And that's certainly what we're going to have tonight. We're going to have a conversation. And I know and trust that there are a lot of Anne Truitt's admirers in the audience, people who've been following her career, her phenomenal work. And I am also assuming that there are a lot of you who've just freshly discovered Anne's phenomenal work. And on the topic of freshly discovered, I'd like to hear from each of us about how we first met Anne. And Martin, would you like to begin? I first met Anne in person when I, uh, she began to teach at Maryland. I think I preceded her by a year or two. And uh, I had known the work, and the work made me, of course, extremely curious to know. I'd heard her, about her reputation, uh, about how in some ways aloof she was from a lot of the nonsense that went on in the art world. She was like a transcendental person, and that reputation really just made me extremely uh, 
anxious to see the person who produced this extraordinary work. And when I did meet her, we, we were um, both involved in teaching sculpture in a department that was very, very territorial. In other words, the people who were teaching sculpture before us had staked out their bailiwick, and it was very much theirs, and we were looking for a way that we could do our teaching without really having been given a, a place to work. So we, we, we shared that, that struggle of, of how we were going to teach what we wanted to teach when we felt we were being a little bit kept out of the... One person was a, a, a clay modeler, the other person was a stone carver. I mean, it was, there was so... It was like guilt. And neither one of us wanted to teach that way. So we, we bonded over that, that dilemma that we had about how we were going to teach without being admitted into the inner sanctum of the sculptures uh, area. And we, we maintained a, a friendship after I left Maryland and, um, because she introduced me to Yaddo and I went to Yaddo for a spell and then became a, a board member at Yaddo and I would see her after I had left Maryland, I'd see her at annual board meetings and I was on the Yaddo board for 10 years. So we, we remained in, 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 in close contact through letters and, and through the board meetings, but of course I would see her work also in New York because eventually I ended up in, the, in New York, in the New York area, and would see her work there and followed it, and of course her books. Yes. So. Well, I have to tell you, I remember when Anne first met you because she was lecturing at the Corcoran at the time and she came to the small student group that we were, probably 25 of us, and she said, I've met the most fabulous individual and, and a kindred spirit, and it was you. And then we all discovered your work and became fans. Jim? Well, I met Anne at, at Yaddo at the Artist Colony in 1999, and um, I... Being at a colony can be a very in, intense experience. You're with a relatively small group of people, having meals with them every day. And uh, we probably hung out for three weeks or maybe even a month, um, talking, in having intensive conversations about uh, the Arctic explorer Shackleton, about Renaissance painting, about uh, my 68 Chevy, which was you know, always on its last legs, but she understood my devotion to it. We talked about all kinds of things before I had any idea of what her work was. I really had uh, no sense of it. And just, we hit it off and I had a tremendous kind of feeling of, uh, that, that I was in the company of a, of a very remarkable person, but also a very, um, down-to-earth person. And then uh, one evening, I, it occurred to me that uh, I, I knew that she was generally quite private about her studio, but I thought, wow, I wonder if there's some, you know, something in the library. And I looked in the little artist's uh, shelves in the auto library and pulled out a catalog, and I looked, opened it up, and I was, whoa. <laughs> and I remember thinking, um, what I felt was quite extraordinary because I felt uh, this may not be what you expected. This may not be even, in a sense, the kind of art that you're usually uh, interested in. And I thought to myself, now that you know this person, whatever is going on here, this is for real and you're going to have to deal with it. And 
that was quite uh, a gift to me to, to then uh, deal with her work uh, not just as a friend but on its own terms and to uh, really kind of give it the attention and, and, uh, and space that I knew that it deserved. So uh, because we somehow got along well and trusted each other, part of my investigation of the work was, was to ask if I could do um, a little portrait. And I, I didn't realize at the time that that was also something that was um, uh, not necessarily something that she would, no. that she would agree to do. Um, but she did, and I recorded the material that's now in the, in the film here. And then I had these subsequent, subsequent visits with her at Yado, and, and, and our friendship deepened every time, and I visited her a number of times here in D.C. and saw her in New York, and um, really, you know, she, I think, would be fair to say, definitely changed my life. I think that's true for all of us. And she was also very responsive. I mean, she was very responsive uh, to my work. I'll, I'll tell another quick story. In that first day at Yaddo, I was finishing a film, which was uh, a documentary about an, a, a very underground musician from Atlanta, Georgia, who was a very kind of renegade character who often uh, uh, performed in drag, had a serious... Uh, drug problem was very poor, and it, you know it, it was a film that when I first met Anne, who had an extraordinary degree of, of elegance and and incredible intelligence, he was astonishingly well read. I remember I was having a, I wanted to have a little work in progress screening to get people's opinions, and I thought, you know, we're getting along fine, but I don't know. If she should see this. Um, and uh, not only was she uh, incredibly accepting of it, but she was uh, brilliantly astute about a couple of things that needed to change. And uh, she was right on, and I changed them. And so that, and I also realized at that point that I could talk to her, show her anything, and that was another part of what I came to, to value. I want to, want to share with everyone something about your film because when I, one of the things I was most excited about when I knew I, I would be studying with Anne Truitt was, oh, this is so fantastic. She'll share with me her whole point of departure and, and knowledge about color. And when I asked her about it, she said, no, I'm not. That's entirely too personal. <laughs> and Jen's film captures and talking about color in the most profound and beautiful way and it's what I've been waiting for for <laughs> close to 40 years <laughs> so thank you John uh, well I met Anna in 1969 and consider myself well considered certainly her one of my closest friends for the rest of her life uh, it was sort of the, Walter Hobbs. Let me give a little. If people here don't know who Walter is, who passed away just a few years ago, was an absolutely wonderful and mercurial curator, museum director, who virtually did absolutely brilliant things, but never in the standard way. 
And the Washington Gallery of Modern Art hired him as director. Uh, Phil and Lenny Stern had started it, I'm sure with a number of other people, I know Phil and Lenny. And it was a position that, uh, Walter had sort of been fired for the Pasadena Museum of Art for God knows what, after he'd done the first Marcel Duchamp retrospective ever. Uh, and Walter had this ability to be a matchmaker. I, was, I think one of Walter's greatest gifts is really taught to He knew who artists, which art, other artists, artists should meet. And the grant program from the Washington Gallery of Modern Art was a situation that was, I forget, like $1,500 or something, uh, but a space to work in. It gave me a dark room. And um, actually, it came out of the blue, too, because I'd, at that point, I'd never gotten a grant. And I got this check, and I brought it back to Walter and said there was a mistake. Because uh, I didn't know people gave you free money, being a New York boy. Uh, and I, I was trying to be honest with this man I just met and thought was brilliant. But he said, so he said, we have this house. And Calvert Street actually happened to live, my apartment was actually right across the street from it. It was perfect. I had a dark room on the uh, third floor, I think, second floor. And Anne had a studio on the first floor. And he told me, well, when you go there, there's someone that you should make an attempt to meet. It's a sculptor. And I'd, I'd actually come up in the art world as a kid in New York. Uh, and so I knew a little bit about it, but I said, sculptor, all right. That's, but she's very private, and one of the things I'd like you to do, too, is make sure no one bothers her when she's working in her studio. If you have any, you know, pass by, make sure. There were a number of other people in this building. So I did. So I actually didn't meet Anne for a She was working in the studio. The door was closed. Everything was quiet. And then one day, the door was open a little. She actually wasn't in it, and I passed, and I saw probably seven-eighths completed sculpture, and I just stopped. It was like, oh. And I literally didn't move. I don't necessarily understand this, but it just hit me right between the eyes. So in at some period of time, Anne had taken a break, was washing her brushes, was ready to go home, and I introduced myself, and she said, oh. Because Walter mentioned I should meet you as well. <laughs> Walter. <laughs> but um, we, you know, again, and, and at this point, I mean, Anne is twice my age, you know, and from a very different background from, um, from that I'm from. Uh, very well educated. I, would, I was thrown out of high school at 16. Nothing mattered. It was like Walter knew. And Anne educated me over many years in many, many matters. Uh, I probably also, what I tried to do back is I photographed every, every, virtually every piece of art in the exhibition upstairs. I tried to photograph if, in color. If you've been and looked at those pieces, they cannot be photographed. The color is beyond what film would do. And she was very kind, and she liked my pictures. But <laughs> no way. I mean, nothing. No, terrible. I mean, uh, um, and then, let's see, I guess it would be, I, I'm bad on dates. I tried to get the chronology out of the catalog. But about two and a half years later, she was showing at Pyramid Gallery that Ramona Suna uh, 
Rain at that point, who's here tonight, who I thank again for this opportunity. And she said, you know, we should do a show together. So I did a show of my photographs and Anne's sculpture, which was probably one of the more eccentric shows you will ever, black and white photographs, small, uh, and these pristine sculptures, and we, we loved it. I mean, it was like a one, both of us were exceedingly happy, and I felt incredibly honored to be able to do it with her. And I'm a photographer. I do, you know, at that point, Walter had set up for me to be able to continue to live here by uh, photographing art, uh, artists' work, too. He helped me with it. So I was pretty confident with it. And I was lazy with my own show. And the last day, I did all the installation shots. And the show came down, and the lab ruined all the film. Oh. There are no pictures of the show oh. ever, ever exist. When was the show, John? When was the show? I believe it was 74. 74, all right. 73, no, 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 because I was with Castelli by 74, so it would have been like, it could have been, Ramon may remember it, 73 or uh, 72, 73, I guess. And um, I think what all of us want to tell, too, outside of these anecdotal things, Anne was an ex if Anne had done nothing of note, to talk about, except be a person on the earth who raised three wonderful children. She would be one of the most remarkable people you ever met. Agreed. And that she did this. It's an incredible enhancement. Beyond that. Uh, she was one of the most important people in my life. And I miss her. We all do. Kristen. Well, I mean, my experience is, is a bit different uh, than the other panelists. And I, I think I would have to say that I really only came to know Truett through her work and also through the, the people that knew Truett. And I've heard many uh, remarkable stories along the lines of these during my research. But I did have an introduction to her, and that came through her studio assistant, Brice Honeycutt. And, um, and the actual introduction came, I believe, at a poetry reading of Sam's, either at Atticus Books or Poetry and Prose. I can't quite remember which one. But, um, but I was introduced, and what I can say is that I was very shy and tentative, and the person who, who greeted me and spoke to me was someone who was incredibly gracious and incredibly respectful, and it's just a memory that um, I carry with me. Well, I, I will share that I'm the only one among us who wasn't Anne's peer, really. She was the master and, and I, was, I was the student. Um, I first had this fervor about needing to meet her when I saw the exhibition at the Corcoran Gallery of Art in 1974. I um, was studying at the Corcoran, it's a museum school, the galleries, or rather the studios then had ease of access to the, to the galleries. And I actually had no awareness of the exhibit as it was going up. I didn't see it until it was completely finished. And it was a day that the museum was closed. And I felt as, I, my, the words to describe it were like John's. I was frozen. The work was so arresting that I couldn't move. And the only movement that I really did experience was inside. I felt I was being lifted up off the ground by a few inches. 
And I was mesmerized, I was transfixed. And I don't even recall how long I was in the, in the galleries, but a long time. It seemed like nanoseconds to me. And I went to Bill Christenberry, who was the head of the fine arts program at the Corcoran, and it was the most aggressive I think I've ever been in my life. I said, you, you, you know her? You've met her? You, you have to bring her in to, to, to speak to us. We need to meet her. And Bill obliged. And I, I, I know I spent a sleepless night anticipating meeting Anne Truitt. And at this point, our studios were at the DuPont Center at 21st and P. And there were very few of us. There were probably 25 students in the entire beautiful townhouse in a, with a big first floor gallery. And I was peering out the second floor bay window, waiting for Anne to come. Frankly speaking, I was thinking she, she would be carried in a sedan chair. Um, <laughs> That's how reverential I was, but in fact, a, a sedan pulled up into the semicircular driveway, and I thought, I, I think it's Anne Truitt. And I went running down the stairs, went outside, I opened her door, and I was um, in awe, and she knew it. <laughs> and the first words she said to me were, hero worship sets my teeth on edge. <laughs> So I thought, okay, Tim, calm down. Um, and then I think I exclaimed, I can't believe you're driving your own car. Um, so we went into the building, and she was, as, as Kristen said, just the warmth, the grace, the elegance of being about her um, was transformational for, for all of us. But, but I have to say, especially for me, and I felt... I was already enraptured by the work, then I was enraptured with the person. And there was an aura about Anne, and I know that she saw auras in other people, and I couldn't get enough of her. And she, she agreed to come in every week and, and uh, hold a conversation, as she would say. We'll, we'll have a conversation in the gallery, it was always informal, we would have tea. And she would talk about literature, science, um, art, and it was always, always fascinating. And, you, and I have to add, you always felt you were in the presence of greatness. And, and I don't overstate this, trust me. And you always felt that you were in the presence of an, an intelligence that you could never rise to. And Alexander and I were talking earlier about how Anne had an ability to level you. <laughs> if she just wanted to stop the conversation, it was Heraclitus she would invoke. Uh, any Roman poet, the, well, the Roman, Roman poet Heraclitus said X, okay, that's it. Um, and it was wonderful, absolutely wonderful. Um, so in the spirit of conversation, where would we like all this to go? We want to talk about um, your fondest memory of Anne, or, I mean, I could, I could talk for all of us forever, I won't do that. Actually, I'll add a, a personality trait, which, which will probably be slightly off what we've done. Let's Anne hear it. ruthless, too. Ruthless? In the best sense of the word. I remember once she recommended that I read The Art of War. When, actually, when, when I started having to deal seriously with the New York art world, she said, it's the most helpful book for me to understand how to do business. Very interesting. But I want to give you a point, why I, what I mean by this. The exhibition at the Cork, and the retrospective exhibition, I actually... You know, I photographed the catalog and I helped Walter and Ann in whatever little way, you know, move a little something or whatever. 
But I saw, I saw Anne, I mean, Anne was not romantic about what she did. She was not nostalgic. She was not self-indulgent. She had done a whole body of work in Japan that uh, she had had questions about, but they'd been in storage. She'd kept them in storage. She'd moved them, obviously, back from Japan. Which had been, and they were done in, all in aluminum, I believe. Mm-hmm. And Walter Hops, in the, as, as you would do, wanted to see everything that was available. And they were brought from security storage, and they were all unwrapped in one of the major room, big rooms up in the courtroom. And we came in. I actually, I think I can't. I think I may have driven. I may have driven in at that point, so he wouldn't drive. So we came in, and Anne looked very carefully at each one, and looked at Walter and said, I will have all these destroyed. Not a second thought. Looking at Anne, Walter said to her, Anne, are you absolutely sure? She said, oh yes, no question. All them out. Just, we'll, we'll sell them. We'll sell them for scrap. And the one accommodation was said, Walter, would you let John photograph both front and back for me? For my records, for for the record, she said, "Well, yes, it's it's actually it's part of my biography that I did bad work." And, and she was right. I mean, the pieces were not up to the standards of what you see, but it was unromantic, correct, and immediate. It was like, and she had the presence of mind to make the decision exactly and to edit them you know, out. She had no hesitancy. She evaluated each, looked at each one carefully, and these will go. And that's at that, that end of Ruth. That's what I mean by ruthless. And it was her own sense of it. And it was a moral ruthlessness and an artistic ruthlessness. And an integrity ruthlessness. An integrity, yes. exactly. And Kristen, you have a very interesting theory, which I had never heard until tonight, about that, about Anne's editing eye. Well, I, I mean, I just wonder if it has some parallels, uh, that decision to sort of edit work um, with with. And through it, sort of um, uh, making a visit with Clement Greenberg and Kenneth Nolan, as I understand it, to Morris Lewis's uh, the warehouse where Morris Lewis's work was stored after after his death, and making decisions about which works were truly finished works and which works really didn't um, represent the artist's completed work. And and just to give that a little bit of a context, Morris Lewis, Lewis had not seen most of his work unfurled. So this was, it wasn't as though anyone was stepping in and, and doubting his own judgment. He hadn't had the opportunity to actually right. see a lot worked, of the work. He worked in his home in a very small space, yes. so necessarily he couldn't stretch all his, his paintings while he was making them. So, I mean, I, I, I do wonder, um, I wonder about sort of Clement Greenberg's influence uh, on this part of, of, of her process. Because it is interesting when she talked about the work that she made in Japan, she described it as very much uh, work that came from the intellect. She described it as in- intelligent work, but lifeless work. And Clement Greenberg, when writing about minimalism, which he was fairly critical of, uh, described work in that movement as really a feat of ideation, I believe was one of the phrases that he used. So something of of the mind, of the, well, of the intellect, but not something that had the power to move and affect, which is uh, an attribute or attributes that Greenberg actually associated with, with Truett's work. Martin and, and Jem, did this topic ever come up with either of you, the, 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 the work that she made in Japan? I know that she talked about the work. I went to Japan myself uh, shortly after I spent some time at Yaddo, 
and uh, I had, knowing that she spent time there, we had a conversation. I remember we spoke at some length about my trip to Japan. She gave me some suggestions about things I should see, about uh, being very aware of the, of the deer at Nara, at this park, that uh, if you turn your back, they could, they're sort of semi-tame deer who, if you don't give them food, they'll lower their head and they'll come at you like a <laughs> All these things. She had wonderful stories, but I think in general she, if I don't remember incorrectly, she found Japan difficult. She found living in Japan difficult. Um, and just the way she described uh, her time there as she was telling me what I could expect and, and suggesting things I should see and how I could deal with the place. And there was another, another Tim at the same uh, time who was going to Japan. Tim, what was his name? The other uh, student named Tim. I don't know. Um, is anybody in the Tim Beard, that's right, who, who also went to Japan. So she was talking to two men who were planning to go to Japan. I remember at the same time. But anyway, I think that, that the fact that she was not altogether probably in her own comfortable place while she was in Japan may have affected, because I know that, that she, she was so clear about working from a grounded place. Well, I, I know that when she spoke to me about it, it was, had really had to do with the differences in the quality of light there versus moving the work here and how the, the color was completely different and even her own perception of the shapes was different. And she said it just, it, it, it was aberrant compared to the rest of the work that she was creating. Yeah, yeah I, I, would, I would add to what John said about her you said the word ruthless. I, I think I would I would describe her as being probably one of the most decisive people I've ever met. Yes. That she um, was so certain. It was uncanny how certain she was about almost anything she was talking about. Agreed. And, she, her, and, and it was, I think it was based on a very deeply grounded intuition she had about things. Um, but but you, didn't, you didn't sense fudging with her or uh, she just was so incredibly certain about things. There was nothing ambiguous, no. it seemed ever. It was either a yes or a no. And as, as I talk about her, I'm, I'm torn between talking about the work, which I think is extraordinary and which I found moving and puzzling when I first saw it, and, and the person who, yes. I, who I, I felt. I mean, one of the strongest um, things I got from knowing Anne is, is how she balanced a life that was completely committed to raising a family and at the same time equally if not more committed to, to being in the studio. And that, that's a dilemma that every artist who has a family has to face and it's really so crucial and so complicated and she made it, not that it was easy for her, no. But you saw that she was she was maintaining this amazing balancing act with such grace that I was I was amazed for all the years I knew her when her kids were at home and I knew her at the time when she had kids at home and she was teaching at Maryland and she was going to the studio reducing this body of work and also when I would read her books I would see how she processed I mean for me this was really important to see how how an artist. It was, it was a lesson for me on how to, how to live a life. Well, I think that that's a, an extraordinarily, extraordinarily important point because for me, 
working with her and, and being a student and such a, a, a huge admirer, she impacted how I navigate the world. Not, not just my artwork, but how I navigate life and, and the qualities with which I do that. And, and I hear that you saying the same thing. Absolutely. And, and that's a hugely unusual quality in an, in an individual to be able to portray that and have those of us around her be able to embrace it and, and, and act on it. She was the most uncanny combination of, of like I mentioned earlier, sort of a transcendental spirit, mm -hmm. but also incredibly down to earth. I mean, there wasn't anything that come up about human, human interaction or human activity that would shock her. She was completely, uh, I mean, she was, and, and she, she didn't seem to be, you know, she had, for herself, she had extremely high standards. Yes. But I didn't see her, um, ex she was very loath to express judgment in that, in that sort of mean-spirited sense. I never ever found her to be mean-spirited. I could find her to be direct and in a critique. I mean, with my own work, I could find her, I mean, she was always right, as, as, as John said. Um, but, and she was, and she had a, uh, she, it was tough love, in a manner of speaking. She cared about you, she was giving you her time, and she was going to tell you exactly what she thought. You know, I have to say, I, I agree to an extent in that I would certainly, I, I, when I think of Anne, I think that Anne was hardcore, and I mean that in the, in the best sense of the word. But I also felt that she was, she was, she was searching, she was exploring, and that was not something that ever ended. It wasn't like she made her decisions and this is what she was gonna do, and then she just did it. She had, an enormous curiosity and I think that she was on a, a, a difficult path but it was one that gave her a great deal of joy and part of that joy was that she was always kind of uh, you know setting the canoe and then riding it and then setting it and then riding it again and um, I felt uh, that it was something that she kind of, it was a practice that she saw going way back in, into the past. I mean, when she quoted those Greek poets, it wasn't, it wasn't gratuitous. It was because she felt that, that they were speaking uh, to us. And she also, um, felt, I think, that, that all artists uh, are, are struggling to get at something. But I think that, you know, as a human being, it, she was not on, only always sure of everything. She, she was also uh, in, intent on the struggle. I mean, she was intent on finding balance. She, uh, she cared enormously for her children, but she knew that it was a difficult thing that she had done by choosing and needing to be an artist in that incredibly intensive way. That was something that she was always uh, balancing and trying to, to understand. And, and, and her, 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 her books are full of that kind of complexity of um, 
not just knowing, but also looking, well, searching. I have to completely agree with you. I think that what Martin and I were saying was that when she reached the moment of decision, yes. it, there wasn't ambivalence. It was that yeah. this is it. And, and I know that she would say to me when I was searching for where a particular piece of work was going, she would say, push through it and you'll know when you hear a yes. Just push through it. And sometimes that yes was long in coming, but it would come, or the work would go away. But that, that's a beautiful portrayal of her. She had a comment to me that relates to this. There's a piece at, uh, I guess it's called the Smithsonian Museum of American Art now. It was the National Museum of American Art back then. It was in their collection. And um, there'd been some, uh, some kind of small damage to the surface enough that, and, and, and one of the things that would be devil's most artist is the sort of need to take a piece back and restore it. It's very time consuming, and they're sort of, they want to do it, they're the one to do it. So, and, and had gotten this back, and actually Walter, I think, Walter was the director then, or the curator of American art then. Uh, and um, so it went back. And she looked at it, I mean, it was in the studio. She said, John, I'd like you to photograph it for me. Because I hadn't photographed it. It had been in the collection long enough that it was there before. It was quite an early piece. And I said, go right And I said, I, I really need you to do this because they don't know this. But I look back at it now, and I was so certain about it, but I'm going to paint it differently now. Good heavens. Walter, and I said, don't tell Walter. And I didn't. And, and, you know, and she did, and, she, and then she said, come back in whatever weeks later. I mean, these things would take a long time. They were hard things to do. And, you know, photograph it now. She was right. It was better. But Walter was so upset, and you can't do that. This is a matter of re historical record. We, have, we trusted you. She kept saying, Walter, isn't it such a better piece? I mean, well, yes, but... <laughs> I'd never heard that story. Well, <laughs> we don't leave it. But, but the comment was, she said, you know, I had been so sure of this back then. And she was. Before she proceeded, when she was, would proceed, she had to get to a, a sense that she had the balance, she had this sort of spiritual certainty and intellectual certainty that this was the way to proceed, and then she did without hesitation. But she, you know, she was just, a, she had a good humor of it. You know, God, I, I was younger then. <laughs> so the piece you see there now is not the piece you might have seen in your youth. <laughs> I have to share a funny story with you, though, as a, a student story. Anne was lecturing about painted sculpture through history. And it was fascinating. And it's the only time I've ever known her to come to the Corcoran armed with slides. Um, it was, as I said, it was a conversation. And sometimes she would bring books, and sometimes books with illustrations. Um, and the books without illustrations, there were passages that she would read, and it was always inspirational. But this particular time, it was much more of a former lecture, formal, formal conversation with slides. And she's going through the centuries. We got to the 20th century, and she has beautiful slides of the work of David Smith. And she proceeds by saying that David Smith was the first 20th century artist to paint his work. And we go on through the century. And after it was over, there was a question and answer session. And I had a question, but I didn't want to ask it in front of my peer students. I thought, well, I could be wrong, and I'll embarrass myself. And if I'm even remotely right, I don't want to embarrass Anne. 
so as I was escorting Anne out to her car, I asked, may I ask you a question about your lecture? And she said, well, certainly. Said, said you mentioned that David Smith was the first 20th century artist to paint his work. Yes, she said with impunity. So I asked, what about Alexander Calder? And she looked at me very matter-of-factly and she said, but I don't like Calder's work, do you? <laughs> very similar and, and to the she sculpture. Too good a manner to say 20th century sculpture of any worth. She's very well mannered. <laughs> So, Martin, what's your funniest moment with Anne? That's going to take some thinking. <laughs> I have many. I would, I, would just, I would just mention that um, this is exactly why I find it odd that, that, that the museum would allow an artist to restore their work because I was, I was in the position of sometimes having to restore work and they are extremely reluctant for that very reason to let the artists get their own hands back. <laughs> I, I now more than ever. Oh, absolutely. And, and, I, and, and I've restored a piece that was in the National Gallery. And I did it in the gallery, uh, in, their, in their own conservation lab. Under their sight. With, with the conservator watching. The piece that got knocked over. It was probably after Anne had done this. Yeah, it's, it's a true story that from museum director to museum director, obviously. The Guggenheim uh, conservator said that they have an absolute policy never to let an artist get their hands on their own work in restoration. <laughs> and, and also, I think there was a case with, was it, was it uh, uh, Chamberlain, I believe, may have gotten a piece back for restoration, and, and they, they uh, when he brought it back after the, it was a completely different piece, completely different. Same kind of thing, you know. I I just wanted to make it better. I wanted, and I, I think it was even even a different chunk of metal that he had, <laughs> he had, he had crushed and given it back to them is, is representing it better. So I mean, that, this is an aside, but I think I think your story about Anne is so funny. I. I um, our, our relationship was, was generally quite sober and serious. And we, well, we, teachers, we, yes. Yeah, uh, we, we, talked, we talked together, and, and um, I, I remember a trip to New York together. I had a big truck at that time, and we, I, I gave her a lift to the city once. And, and we had a long talk on the way up with my big suburban carry-all fan. And, mm. and, and uh, it, was, it was a very, very precious moment to have that much time with her. Uh, it was, it was, it's just so. I hope that we can get on to talking about her work because here we are talking about her as, as a person. Well, I think actually that that's what largely what the museum wanted us to do because yeah, yeah. there are not many opportunities like right. this. But, 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 but you're just, the work expert, so please. Well, I just. It's also the time I spent when she was. Um, involved with Yaddo, which was many, many years. I was on the board of Yaddo, which is, if you don't know, it's an artist community in Saratoga Springs, New York, where artists can go and spend weeks at a time with complete protection for your privacy. <coughs> your meals are provided. Um, and artists across disciplines. A studio is provided, and you're there with composers and writers. Um, and it, it, it's an extraordinary place. You really are, are lifted up, as Anne would say. Uh, as a as a creator, as a creative person, during the time you're there, and it tends to produce incredibly intense periods of of um, 
productivity for whoever goes there. And after I was encouraged to go there, I had had a big fire in my studio. And, oh, and, I remember, uh, actually. Lost pretty much everything, and so it was very appropriate that, that I could use a place like that to reconstitute myself. And Anne suggested it, and, and I went. And then I began to be very interested. I didn't go back as a guest again, but I, I got involved in working for Yaddo after that for 10 years. So I would see her. And, um, but I, I can't think of... I, I can think of merriment from Anne. I can think of the way she could she could laugh about things. But um, I think our our relationship was fairly was fairly. Uh, uh, we're always asking each other questions. She was had, had an extraordinarily curious mind yeah. about everything. Yeah. About everything. Yeah. But I hope we can talk about her work because I think that's that is <laughs> yeah. that is really what I think moves people, it moved me, and yeah. I, I would, well, talk. I was, I was quoted last night at dinner uh, by Richard Kaschalik, the director, as saying that, because he asked me what I, what I thought of her as a sculptor, and I said that I, I saw her as a person who made three-dimensional paintings. And, and by that, I don't mean to say that she's not a sculptor, but I think that her, her feeling for color and for her own, um, the way that she talks about her practice as setting color free yes. from a surface and putting it out and, and making it an entity that you can move around and experience. And what I think about the exhibition that's so incredible is not just the sheer volume of her work but the range that you can see, which I've never seen before. I've seen exhibitions of hers, small ones in, in the galleries and, and here in the pyramid she showed there with Asuna's gallery, and with the gallery she showed at her shows at Emmerich and Renato Danese. Always a small group of works. And knowing from having looked at small exhibition catalogs that I have of her, a little bit larger range, but to see the span of her work that you have here, and the, just the sheer lusciousness of it. And the way she would talk about the shapes of her pieces, it was as though she, she said she had them in her, in her mind, yes. fully formed. And she simply had to put it down on a piece of paper and deliver it to, to whoever made them, the man who made the, the forms for her, and then she would paint them. But the fact that she painted her works with a brush and alternated the direction of the brush strokes. And dozens and dozens of layers. Layers and yes, layers and layers. That would, there's, that is not a minimalist activity. No, it's not at all. That, that, is, no. that, is, that is very much hands-on, almost like a, like a meditation. And, and it's, it's something that I almost want to use the word Zen about the way that she, she, she engaged her work and, and, and focused on it. And uh, it, it's whether you can see the result and looking at the work, I think for her it meant everything to her, that that's how she had to do it. Well, I have to add, too, as, as her student, uh, I, of course, mesmerized by these stunning, glorious forms. I kept, I, I wanted to know whether there was a, 
answer to the riddle of the Sphinx, whether there's some Pythagorean theory, whether it's, there's a golden mean to these. And when I asked her about going to the woodworker, she said, well, no, I'd go to my woodworker and say, I want it to be this high. And it was that simple. And that, that she was very matter of fact about it. She, I, she made a comment to me about minimalism once, which probably in the reviews of this show, some reviewer will throw that around. And, it, and as she would say, it's the, it's the term that set her teeth on edge. Mm -hmm. But I'll try to get it right, and I probably won't. I'll, para, I'll probably wind up paraphrasing it. But essentially, she said, and without being derogatory, well, the minimalists have something to prove. They're about setting, solving some problems as they perceive it about the possibilities of sculpture. And for me, it, that never comes into it. They're virtually gifts to me that I just try to execute. Like it's fully formed. It comes in, the issues of whether primary uh, form sculpture could occupy a room in a way that, without being narrative, all, all the issues that John Judd I think found very important and probably uh, solved for himself were of no relevance to her at all. It's, I heard those very words. You know, in, in some ways, I mean, her show was reviewed by Donald Judd, one of her first shows in New York. And in an odd way, I, I, she would never be assertive enough that she influenced Judd and Robert Morris considerably, who both saw the shows. And in some way, they backtracked from her. She'd already taken for granted that this kind of space, these pieces, in these primary forms, the form of the piece, the actual uh, volume of the piece, were fully empowered to occupy space. And they had, after it had been, it's, it's almost like a mathematician who gets a, an, a brilliant insight, and then someone go back, later goes back and figures out the proof. Mm. She was never figuring out the proof. It was right. a given. It, it seemed so true to her, so true to what she wished and her experience, that it was never, she, hadn't, she never had anything to prove with them. And she was not a minimalist in that sense. She had no theory. There was no theory behind this. It was experiential. Well, this one, I'm going to go on, but go on. a little aside to give you guys to seeing the show. And it doesn't happen with everybody. And it, well, it happens for me with, with Martin's work but as well. It's very appropriate to be here. You can go to a very, very good exhibition of works that are of very high quality and not feel that you have any real insight into the presence of the artist as a person in your, who you may or may not have ever meet. It's sort of irrelevant. The thing's hard to go out on their own. In this exhibition, if you just let yourself viscerally experience the pieces, you get a piece of what it was like to be in the room with Anne Truitt. Absolutely. Not all work has that. It's not necessary. In this case, it's true. There's an aura I, and a re resonance. Well, the, the piece, I, I have a piece that I own. The last piece in the show is actually one that I own. And Anne's pieces are particularly delicate. 
and my living situation has never been such to have a grand space to put it in. And these wood sculptures, at, at different times in my life, I've had cats. <laughs> cats and Andrew sculptures are not a good idea. So I've had this piece wrapped in my studio as Anne wrapped it for 20 years. And because I was a caretaker of it, I know exactly in, I know exactly what it means to the body of Anne's work. And they opened the person came and the preparators and they opened the piece. And I know but I was speechless. It was like when the whole room filled. And it was Anne. It was like, boy, that's creepy. Boy, is that wonderful. And you know, it's now I have to figure out a way. Now I can't not I cannot wrap it up again. I don't no longer have cats, but you know, when it, when the show's over, I'm going to make a space for it because I can't live without it. Wonderful, now. wonderful. John, John, I actually have a question for all of you that that knew her and the statement that being in the presence of the work has some sense of being in the presence of the artist. But I but what I found through through looking at so many of her work her works and um, more than are in the show, that there's great variety there. I mean, this is, a, this is an artist who has an incredible span of work, although there's a, a spine that runs through it, a continuity that runs mm -hmm. through it between shape and color. She engaged with, with many different kinds of compositions. And I'm wondering, what is it about, in that variety, is that all Antruitt? Uh, I mean, how, how do you relate the variety of the work to Well, I think that, you know, the stuff of her work is life, and so life has its variety that, had, that she had to attend to in different ways in, in, in the work. And I, I mean, the work, I think it is important that we try to talk about the work. It's also very difficult, partly because um, the work is sort of simultaneously uh, very difficult and not difficult at all. I mean, people can have a direct emotional, yeah. uh, sort of visceral response to it, and yet, if you, you know, this is a very, uh, a very complex person with a very complex awareness of, uh, of not just art history but human history. And one of the things that's complicated about talking about the work is that the work is not about. It's not about art, you know, and that's one of the things that she discussed, that she wasn't, she wasn't making artwork about artwork. She right. wasn't making artwork that was referential to, uh, to other pieces, other movements, the scene, what happened to be going on. It, there's something else going on there. Whereas a lot of work that we've gotten very used to is artwork, talking about artwork. And I think in this very um, essentially mysterious way, the artwork is, is, is talking about life and yet, you know, for, for a lot of people they're going to say, well, how could something so spare and so kind of, uh, you know, I don't know what the other words would be, but how could that be about life? Well, that's the problem here. I mean, that's the question here. And more importantly, I think that's the mystery here. And, you know, the bottom line is, like, 
there are words that we can solve that mystery with. That has to be between people and the work who do attend to the work. And a lot of people won't attend to it. I mean, Anne once said to me, and I, I scribbled it down because it was a very kind of a heavy thing, and in a way, kind of a sad thing. She said, people, um, people uh, don't like serious work. She said, it makes them nervous, and they want to be excited. And I think she meant they want to be entertained. You know, that's what, that's what's a lot of the, it, you know, it, I think the subtext of that was that that's what a lot of the art world and that's what a lot of culture is about, is about, is about being entertained. And when someone is, 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 this was not a pretentious person. I think we can all agree that she was very down to earth and occasionally often very funny. But she was also, you know, she was on a serious course. Indeed. In a culture which is not always welcoming to that, um, to that kind of seriousness, and so it it becomes a very um, sort of to, to me fascinating, but really a, a, a difficult thing to to find words for is how you encompass someone trying to deal with. Life matters, and when I, when I say life, I mean I also mean you know she was in a way like dealing with physics, dealing with the nature of gravity and what gravity means on a sort of level of of, of physics, but also personally, you know how how we are attended to by gravity and how that changes over the course of our lives and that kind of thing. And she was she was dealing with things like that. She was dealing with light. She was obviously. You know, in some regards, more than anything else, de dealing with color. And um, one of the things that that I think is interesting to me and useful is that I had to, in, I had to kind of become comfortable with the fact that I don't always like the colors, and it doesn't have anything to do with whether I like them. They're not. She's not making them to make them easy for me to like them. This is not about you. It's not about. <laughs> no, it's not about me. But it is about me. And, then, and I say that because the work, there's all kinds of anecdote and facts about her life, details that you can sort of connect pieces to certain things. But she was also very clear that the work was not that, that kind of, that can be very enriching. And that's one of the jobs of a museum, of a retrospective, of a, you know, it's one of the jobs of, of art historians, but it's also a little bit perilous because you can sometimes put too close of a connection and say, oh, now I understand this work because this is referring to that time in her life when this happened, or now I understand why that color is there because, you know, it, it, she loved this kind of tree and this kind of tree had that color in it. That's, that's very, that's perilous going with her work because it, it, it had to do with life in the, in the broadest sense, but it had, to also, it had to be not just about her life. It had to be also about yeah, the pieces' lives. The pieces' lives and, and whoever, whoever viewed it. Mm -hmm. If they were going to be open to it, then it had to have some connection, I think, to, to, to their lives. I think the last hold, and it's a hold that remains basically obscure enough to be a secret that she kept with each piece, is they're all titled. Pay attention to the titles of the pieces there. I mean, they're, they're not titled arbitrarily, they're not one, two, three, four. 
And they, they may not be solvable. They're not autobiographical consistently. But they're but they, a clue. They're all very intended about thoughts, about yes. experiences, about actual individuals that she met. Uh, that was the last little, like, like with a child, they still bear your last name when they go off. People talk about romantic about it. She kept that sort of that little touch, and it, it didn't wouldn't change your relationship to the piece. Because I think you make a very good point. It's not about a biography. Illust it's not an illustrated biography by any means. But um, I, I just want to interject that from spending many many hours with Anne, especially. In my because I, I knew her after I was no longer a student. I considered her a dear, close friend. <clears throat> Having spent many hours with her as a student, and we were all struggling as students with finding ourselves and, and um, having, a, having an identity through our work. She was a great leader for us in that regard, having to do with her own seriousness of purpose and her integrity as a, a person. I won't even say as an artist, as a person. And going back to what I believe you referred to, Martin, about Anne having a, a, a clear vision in her head about what needed to come out, she was, by the time that she named the work and she felt a responsibility to name the pieces, she was just as clear about that yeah. and the sort of metaphorical relationship to the actual being of the work. Yeah, uh, I never quite, I never asked the question of when the name occurred. Yeah, we, we did, as students, we did. Ah. And, and Jen, I have to say, I, I find what you said to be really beautiful and inspiring about how, in, in a way, she's, she wasn't making art. I mean, and, and she wasn't about that. And she wasn't following art movements. And I mean, I remember her saying to, to again, a group of students when we were asking, well, how do you end up with a retrospective exhibition at the Whitney Museum and at the Corcoran, which she had had? And she said, the work attracts an audience unto itself. And I believe, correspondingly, that one of the reasons why she has not been as well known and, as, and, and one could say undervalued as an artist is because she wasn't self-promoting. She wasn't out there on the art game bandwagon. And it's a reason why we're all so lucky that the exhibit is here today. And the other, I think, thing, reason it didn't attract certain attention at a, at a very superficial level is unless you paid attention, the work exhibited no obvious craft. Do you really believe that? I look at this work and I see phenomenal craft. Oh, no. I mean, by the ease of something, there, there is, it would seem, at a very casual viewing of it, that she had some columns made or made them. There is a very relatively simple form to, to execute. And some, and some colors were put on. I mean, that's obviously, that's not the I, way I know what you're saying. I, I, but I think that's an interesting statement uh, and maybe points out a sort of bind that this work found itself in. Because on the other hand, it doesn't have the, the sort of removal of the hand that that canonical minimalism does. Yeah. So it doesn't fit into that category mm -hmm. either. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's work that, uh, you know, sort of transcends categorization as the art world mm. categorized work in the 60s and 70s. Yeah. And that, I think, is part of the, the complication or 
um, the reason that, you know, for, for the last 30 years, there hasn't been a major show of, of the work because it's outside of those categories. It has a unique place. Mm -hmm. It has a unique place. But I know as one who made sculpture and who revered the qualities possessed by Anne, I look at this work and unless it's flawless, we will detect it immediately. And I think it was the flawlessness Though, as we were saying earlier, if you get up close to the pieces, you can see the, you oh. can see little minuscule brushstrokes. Well, you pay attention. Yeah. I mean, you know, it, it becomes. I actually have a, I have a tough question, Martin. Maybe really, how do you see the difference? Because I think a lot of people in the audience do know what your work is. But the difference between your work and Anne's. Oh. I know, I know, it's horrible. I got to. It hurt. I don't really like to hear it. You, you can tell me, forget it, but. I don't even know where to start. I, um, uh, I would almost rather just just talk about her work. All right. I mean, it really was an unfair yeah. one. But, yeah. but I, what I was going to say is is that I think what's interesting about about the show is that you can see the span of of what she was thinking about. And the idea that the work is only about itself, I think, is belied by the fact that in her earliest work, you see echoes of, you see memories, discrete memories of things. Well, the, f the, the fence referencing the, first, yes. And these, and these silhouettes, and they're so, they're such distilled memories. And, and it's, it's like something that minimalism never lets you see, which is how it got to be yeah. where it was. And you can see in her work, at that stage, an evolution, yes. sort of a purification or distilling of, of, of memories into, into pure form, pure shape. And I also think that in that show, you have the ability to see something about her process through her drawings, which I think are extraordinary. So subtle and so decisive. I mean, there you see that incredible decisiveness and, and just amazing sureness of, of line yep. uh, that she would put down, it, it's extraordinary. And I think they're, they're so easy to miss because they're so slight. Yeah. The interventions on the paper are often so slight, just fine graphite lines and of white on white color. Just a slight bit of, of, of color that just a little shade or two off the ground color of the paper. And you, you can almost walk past and think you're looking yeah. at, a, at, at just a blank piece of paper. And I think it's, it just gives you such an insight into how she thought about her work. And there's one drawing, I think, which is extraordinary, which is, to me, most of her drawings are very planar. But there's one that's twisted, this very strange mm -hmm. diagonal that, that, that describes a very oblique shape in space. A diagonally drawn rectangle lines off of that, and then this this kind of diagonal thing spanning it. You really can sense the deep space in that drawing, which you don't see in most of her planar drawings. And that's extraordinary. And the other thing I would, I would mention is that the very last works, which I heard, I heard her describe the last time I saw her, which was, I think, the year before she passed away. And she used the word piths. And yes. I didn't know what she was talking about. And I had never seen them because, until this exhibit. As a woodworker, I, I think of pith as the center of a of a, of a certain kind of woody stem. 
there's a, there's a pithy part in the middle that's kind of pulpy. And, and so I still don't know quite what she meant by these things. So I, see, I saw them for the first time. Me too. And they're these black, flat things, uh, mm -hmm. painted um, shapes, unstretched canvas that are presented horizontally on a, on a flat surface like a table that you're looking at from above. Very strange, very, very strange for her. Mm -hmm. and, and the fact that they're all black and painted, obviously, the label says on both sides, frayed edges, so different from anything she's, that I know of her having been done before. Well, I'm glad to hear you say that because I saw them also for the first time in this exhibition and didn't know quite where to place them. And Jim? Well, that's one of the reasons why I was talking about this you know that that she was always searching because those were done at a point where some big things had shifted for her, and she, um, in a in a certain way, I think that she felt um, with a great deal of kind of wonder, she found herself unmoored, and she was. She was working with that. I mean, that's. I was at Yado when, when the those were being made. Oh, all right, so and, you were with her. Yeah, and it wasn't. I mean, I'm not going to say if this is what she said or whatever, but I think that that that, that was the, the. What struck me at the time was how amazing to see somebody um, dealing with kind of tectonic shifts and kind of heading right into the eye of the storm. You know, that's, that's what I felt she was, mm -hmm. she was doing, that she was, uh, you know, and yeah, it was, it, it's, it's... What do you mean by tectonic shifts? Shifts in what? Um, things changed for her in, in, in her in her work, things things changed that had always been her her kind of uh, armaments, and some of them she she realized she came to a place where she had to to put certain things aside, and and I, I, I'm loath to try to be too specific about this because I I feel like. Uh, this is a this is it's a big thing to talk about that kind of very late work. Um, I talked to Anne a lot about Goya's late work, which we both had a tremendous respect for. And you know, sometimes artists are are uh, if they're kind of brave enough, then they they all right up until the end they continue to. Uh, to make the changes that they have to, to do what they have to do. And that's uh, sort of all I can say is that she came to a place where some things had shifted mm -hmm. in a big way. And instead of being just um, mortified or, or crushed by it or stopped by it, she's, she was like, I'm going to attend to this. And this is, this, these are the forms in which some of, some of the, the forms in which that transformation was expressed. I have a, a question about 
I'm going to pose uh, about the way that she found herself here in Washington at a time when the Washington Color School was becoming uh, inter uh, nationally, at least nationally, um, uh, a phenomenon. I'm glad you're going there. And it's and it's and it's it's a it's a time that I think. It's the only time I can think of when Washington, in my, in my lifetime that I can recall, Washington had a school of its own. And I wonder whether you, can, you could say that this is the background against which Anne came to, came to her fruition or her, her selfhood as an artist, or whether she was just, it was coincidental or she was independent of that. What do you think? Well, I mean, there are related relationships and friendships. In 1948, she um, attended the Institute of Contemporary Art here in Washington. Mm -hmm. um, Kenneth Nolan was there at the time, and they met there. Mm -hmm. um, but the work that she was making in the late 40s and the 1950s was, was in a way abstract figuration. Mm -hmm. uh, she was exploring clay and cast cement and marble, different kinds of materials. So. So what's interesting, I mean, that it sort of sets the tone, perhaps, for what happens in 1961. Mm -hmm. She's also looking at David Smith's work. Mm -hmm. So another artist who has a connection to Washington, D.C. So again, I think it's a, mil it's a milieu, but it's not necessarily a direct influence. And, and from what I've read and sort of heard others uh, say about the artist, just as she didn't identify herself with the minimalist, she did not identify herself with the color field artist. And I heard, have heard her say that. Yes. Yeah. And also, the work at that time, if one was doing a group show of Washington Color School, the work she was actually doing at that moment really didn't quite fit in. She hadn't really hit her stride quite yet when some of the other people really had, I think. I think it's a slight time shift, too. But, but, you know, it is interesting uh, then to look at the pits and this late series, which she came to at age 80, mm -hmm. and the very direct relationship of paint on canvas. And, I mean, I, I can only talk about it as an outsider sort of observing things in the work. But that sort of materiality does bear some relationship to the, the kind of relationship between canvas and paint of the color field artist, even though it has a very different sensibility in terms of color. But we're talking about material, two types of material, uh, canvas and paint, sort of being merged in these forms. Mm -hmm. And it's also interesting to look at that work and think about the brush strokes that you, you spoke about earlier, the horizontals and the verticals, mm -hmm. and see how they're being pulled apart in the pits. Uh, I don't know. I, I think they're very puzzling works, too. But uh, there are hints throughout her work of diagonals and jagged lines and the buildup of paint on the arundels. Mm -hmm. And it's almost as if many of these different sort of moments of, of her artistic career come together in an interesting way, interesting way in the pits. Yeah. Well, I think it's interesting that you mentioned that she was talking about Goya around that time. Cause, cause Goya well, I, again, that, that might, I mean, to be fair, I may have been, I was obsessed by Goya and recently been to the Prada. So I don't want anybody coming away from this running, oh yeah, she was, re these are referring to the dark paintings of Goya. Um, but it was something that, that we shared. I use that as an example, but I want to be careful about what I 
<laughs> but I attribute well, to her. It's, it's one of the more puzzling shifts in an artist's work that I can think of. Yeah. Well, I, I, there's one thing I want to say as a problem. slight corrective to what I said before. When I said that, use the word unmoored, I think what is interesting about that is that the work was her mooring. So in a way, she, even if she became in some ways unmoored, she never became unmoored because she knew how to go back into the studio and keep going. When I say unmoored, I think in a way, I guess I, 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 maybe a nice parallel would be, you know, she was really deeply fascinated by um, certain explorers, and we often had talked about the little Shackleton's little boat and this whole insane uh, passage that was made through utterly impossible circumstances um, where, uh, anyway, I won't go into that whole story, but for those who want to explore it, they should check out the endurance and read about, about that, uh, that, that trip. But what you have there is, are, are, is somebody who, um, at, at certain points, cannot see the sky or the sea and yet gets there, you know, that's what I meant in a way. And, and when she was with me, let's say 35 years earlier, she would frequently talk about, well, she had all, had all this read, uh, Keep the River on Your Right by Tobias Schneebaum. Yeah. yeah, right. Yeah, similar, similar thing. She knew Schneebaum, I think, from a spell that he, he had at Yadda. Like oh, yeah, no, he was there almost every year. He was yeah. there, we shared yeah. that time. And mm -hmm. every yeah, yeah, I remember her recommending that yeah. as well. How to get out of the Amazon. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I don't want to interrupt the conversation, but I do wonder if we should take a few questions from the audience, maybe? Sure. Does anyone have any questions? I'm sure you all do. Yes, this gentleman. sculptures themselves seem to hover above the platform. And that, that is, uh, I mean, that's part of the sculpture. So if you get down on your hands and knees, you'll see either kind of two sled feet that lift up the sculpture, or um, actually what, what also occurs are sort of a smaller uh, square form that lifts up the work. And it's, it's part of the sculpture. So um, I can understand how you might remember them being grounded, but this is actually how the work is. Yes. Uh, I wanted to address the idea of her being a three-dimensional uh, painter and a three-dimensional painter. And um, something that each person's talking about, color and light and the space, and how in the end she goes to this pith work where she's back to the flat. And um, the thing about those multi-layers that go this way and that, that she spoke about that sort of in terms of spatial depth, that, that it was like a kind of going into a pool of, of layers of color that the eye was responding to in terms of uh, that dimension of sifting into the space of the layers of the paint, multiple, multiple, multiple transparent layers mm. that I think is fundamental to the form of the work mm. from the way she described it. One thing she did too that they haven't mentioned, she would 
put a layer on it, and she would sand it too. She would take mm -hmm. it down to its you know, sort of thinnest transparency of many, many, many colors and the, the different directions that the paint. I mean, I've, I've seen many pieces sort of, you know, one third done, one eighth done, and everything. And they basically, you know, I mean, she knew very well from point one where she wanted it to end and how many, how many layers it took to give that remarkable depth and luminescence to the paint. And it was sort, sort of, I mean, for me, be, you know, photographers don't have much of a hand. It was just magic. I mean, I, I had no, you know, no abilities in that area. It was just like, hmm. So that's how much work it takes to do that. She told me that she discovered that process of cross-hatching by examining paintings at the National Gallery. And that it was that process exactly that enabled this luminosity and then hence the transcendental quality of the margin which very important. Oh, she was a great student of other art, too. I mean, that, I don't think we ever quite said it, but she was one very and had taken very close notice of things that concerned her. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, when, again, when I said that she didn't make art about art, I didn't mean, I mean, she, she certainly knew her, she knew her art history um, probably better than anyone I've ever met. Yeah, me uh, too. But, but, yeah, there's no, no doubt about that. Me and too. she was, she, she, the other thing is that I think is it, one of the things that's so wonderful is she was she was deeply moved by many different kinds of art, mm -hmm. and it, it would be I, I think that some people could look at the work, look at the show, and sort of assume that that maybe you know maybe she liked extremely uh, pristine spare work, and that would be her thing. No, I mean she she would talk about about a specific color in a painting uh, by Giotto or, or something and, and the, the power that, that it had, um, as well as a, a, a contemporary work that, that she loved. And she liked, I mean, she got very involved with younger artists' work as, as being useful to her, too. A number of more contemporary people fascinated her. I remember she talking about Peter Halley at one point that she liked. I sort of said something because casually I'd seen a painting I didn't like. She said, oh no, you really have to pay attention to that. Really got something. I But anyway, uh, thank you very much for today. Uh, this is to me it's very meaningful uh, day and uh, also especially Martin Pyre. Uh, talk about uh, uh, her work is not minimalist work and also almost like a zen-like activity and that is something I really felt when I was walking and also I just thought uh, Hoshio Museum exhibited the collect selected work something to do with the color and then I just compare her colored work and then the other artist's colorful work and then I just realized how much uh, untreated uh, artwork is emotional, very expressive, and very personalized color. And instead of just uh, you know decorative color, and uh, 
I just thought her work is much deeper and uh, uh, very touching. But today's discussion is very wonderful to me. Thank you very much. Thank you. Yeah, speaking of that, I, I was um, struck by an exhibition catalog that was produced, a little pamphlet-like thing that I think had an essay by Walter Hopps in it. And it had some words by Anne by way of introduction. And she started out talking about a place in France where they make perfume. And they gather these flowers by the wagon load full. And the, the just incredible, overwhelming profusion of, 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 of sweetness and, and bouquet. And it was just so sensual. And, and I mean, this is further evidence of the fact that she's no minimalist. I mean, there's no. so much incredible, incredible, just sensuality for the sake of, of it's not indulgent, but it's just, it's just, um, if you can open yourself up to it, it there's so much delight and, 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 uh, and, and feeling in her work. It isn't, it isn't analytical, it isn't dogmatic. It's, no, it's really, not at all. It's very much uh, imbued with feeling and, and a certain kind of truth. And for anyone who has an attention deficit issue, the work's not a quick fix. I mean, it really requires an investment. And I want to encourage all of you who, who are just getting to know Andrew, it's work to, to spend time with it. Yeah, well, I just I just wanted to say that on, on that note, it would it would be it would be great if you'd spend time with Anne Truitt's work. But I think we've put the panelists through a long night tonight, and the attention span probably is going to Thank all of you. Fabulous. I, I just want to thank all panelists. Thank you so very much for doing this tonight. I, I really appreciate it. It was very informing, very enlightening. Thank you. And thank you, audience. It was wonderful.